0: I'm going to talk to you more than I'm going to necessarily teach today. So I want to talk to you about some things and uh, just share some information and challenge you as the church. Amen. 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 And um, Father, we thank you for, Lord, just being able to be called the church, Lord, to be called the body of Christ. Lord, we thank you for this season of celebrating your birth. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to spend time with uh, family and friends. Lord, uh, we're thankful for those things. They're important, they're meaningful. But Lord, I pray that we would also discern and understand that, Lord, these things are not just seasonal. Lord, that what we're called to and who we are Father, transcends a season or a time on a calendar. And Lord, today I pray that you would open our hearts and open our minds by your Spirit. That Lord, we would receive the challenge that you have given to us as believers, as those who call themselves the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we ask today that you would speak to our hearts and speak to our minds, not with the words of men, but Father, by your Spirit, and by your eternal Word, to reveal to us your eternal purpose, that you desire, and that you have ordained to accomplish through our lives. Father, we thank you, we praise you, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, I'll put this, this I'll actually, this will be uploaded on the website uh, I wrote a little something here, I'm just really going to kind of read this, I don't like just getting up here and reading to you, but I I wrote some thoughts this week and I want to share them with you, and I also want to share some information that kind of goes along with it. Um, I don't know, you know, this time of year, because it's the end of a year and the beginning of a, a new year, you know, this is, and I'm not a person who's big on, I think New Year's resolutions are pretty much a waste of time. Uh, I know, you know, when you, when you watch the, if you watch the news anymore, I don't watch the news anymore. I stopped watching the news after the 2008 election. I really did. Very, very rarely anymore do I watch the news because it's just, honestly, I'll just tell you, it's sickening to me to watch it because there's just no Truth. And whatever truth is there, so slanted and so biased. Um, But I can almost guarantee you what you're going to watch and what you're going to see over the next week. So when you turn on the morning news, whether it be ABC, CBS, or NBC, they're going to have pieces about New Year's resolutions and how to eat right and how to live right and how to exercise right and how to make those New Year's resolutions stick, which is all fine and good. Um, but I hope you understand that that who we are in Christ is not something that we do just because we make a resolution. It shouldn't be something that we get pumped up about and excited about because it's the end of a, one year and the beginning of another year and, and we're just going to purpose to do better. There's nothing wrong with purposing to do better. There's nothing wrong with, with that. Don't get me wrong or don't hear what I'm not saying. But... As the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, we need to understand that who we are and what we're called to transcends all of that. We can't just get caught up in these cycles of, I'm going to get really excited now because this is the time of year I'm supposed to get excited and I'm going to change because this is the time of year when we're supposed to change. But then after two weeks or two months or whatever, we just revert back to our default mode and we're right back where we were that's what happens when we try to do things in our own power in our own strength according to our own willpower but we don't operate out of our own strength we don't operate out of our own willpower we are the church of the lord jesus christ i'm talking to all of you as though you are the church i don't know if all of you are the church you might go to church but I don't know if you are the church. You know there is a difference, right? Going to church and being the church are two vastly different things. As the church, we should come together. We get up and we go to a building and we assemble together. That's that's right and that's good, but this building isn't the church. You are the church. Individually and corporately you are the church. And so, I want to talk to you today about the state of the church. <laughs> you know, in January, what is it, January 20th, some, I think is the date, or sometime it's a, a certain uh, day in January, we'll have our president make what's called the State of the Union Address. And every year, presidents do this, and they get up in front of the nation, and they tell the nation what the state of the union is. Where we are, and what we need to do, and what we've accomplished, and what we need to accomplish. And and I think that's a good thing. I think, even as the Apostle Paul said in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, when he told the Corinthians, he said, examine yourselves to see whether you be in the faith. I think we need to examine ourselves, not in a condemning or judgmental way, you know, we're not doing penance. We don't need to do penance, right? Jesus paid the full price. So there's nothing we need to beat ourselves up over, but we should take an honest evaluation and we should honestly examine our lives, I think, on a regular basis to see if we call ourselves the church, if we are being the church, living as the church, does the world how does the world see us and so let me just share a little bit with you here today and then we're going to talk about some information some trends that uh, are emerging or have emerged in the church if we only say that the things that are, if we only say the things that are popular rather than true we may never know the difference you hear that if we if we only say the things that are popular instead of the things that are true, we, we won't know the difference. We may never know the difference between what is popular and what is true. And so that means that being popular is, is much more dangerous than being truthful. A lot of people don't want to be truthful because it's not necessarily popular. So we, we go after popularity instead of truthfulness because it's more fun to be popular than it is to be truthful sometimes. But as the church, we should never sacrifice truthfulness for the sake of popularity. Amen? So too often in the church, we're looking for a cheerleader to pump us up and motivate us instead of a spokesman for the truth. When you guys were in high school, who were the cheerleaders? They were always the popular ones, weren't they? See, I wasn't ever real popular when I was in high school. I kind of was. And so I can remember going to parties with some of the cheerleaders, and I kind of felt like, ooh, you know, maybe I'm getting more popular because I actually got invited to a party with the cheerleaders. You know, that's, that's in our humanness, in our fallen nature. That's the way we think. We want to be popular. And if we associate with certain people, then that, that must mean we're popular. See, God's never called us to be popular, but he's called us to be absolutely truthful. And so, God hasn't ordained cheerleaders in the church, but he has ordained ministers to equip his church for for, for the work of ministry or for his work. God has a work for his church to do. And God has ordained ministers in his church. Now, I'm not the only minister in the building today. I'm, I'm a pastor called to equip you saints for the work of ministry. And so if you're a saint called to the work of ministry, that makes all of you ministers. My area of ministry is to pastor you. But you, are, you have a ministry. You are a minister to go out and do the work that God has ordained, the work of ministry. There is a work By the very fact that we are called the church, because you are the church personally and corporately, that means there is a work that God has ordained you to do. And so this is why God has called us to be equipped for his work. So, when you, tomorrow morning, wake up, to go to your job or to go to your place of business or whatever it is to get up and take care of your family. Are you going to have to have someone there at your house motivating you and pumping you up to telling you, come on, you can do it. You can go to work this morning. It's not going to happen, is it? Now, you, your alarm may go off. Maybe it'll go off at 5, maybe it'll go off at 6, maybe it'll go off at 7, 8, I don't know. But whenever your alarm goes off, if you use an alarm, you might not feel like getting up, but you're going to get up, more than likely, unless you've got vacation next week, and you're going to go to work. And you do those things, you faithfully go to work because that's what you do, because it's what you're supposed to do. It's right. It's good stewardship of what God has blessed you to have. And you don't wake up on Monday morning and say to yourself, I wonder if I should go to work today. Is that really what the spirit is leading me to do? Yeah, you know, I just don't feel the spirit in my work anymore. I think I'll wait until I know for sure that's what God has for me. And when the spirit moves me, then I'll go. Y'all don't do that, do you? Now, how long would your job, your family, your business or whatever it is? How long would it that last? if that was the attitude you took toward your work, it wouldn't last very long, would it? Most of us wouldn't think of treating any other area of our life like this other than our spiritual lives in the church. And why is that? Because we don't see or experience an immediate consequence to our flaky behavior when it comes to the church. Yeah, y'all can already tell I'm not trying to be popular today, aren't, can't you? <laughs> See, if we did this in our work, if we did this in school, if we did this in our families, the consequences would be immediate and inescapable. In the workplace, they have to be, right? I mean, if you're, if you're a man in the fry machine at McDonald's and you don't show up and there's no one there to cook french fries, how long do you think your job's going to last? If, if you're a man in the desk to answer the phone and to greet people that come into your place of business where you work and, and no one is there, how long do you think you're going to keep your job? You're not going to keep it very long. Why? Because the workplace says, hey, you are important. This position is important. And if you don't want to fill it, then we'll find someone else to fill it. But, but somebody's got to fill this spot right here because our business or what we do counts on it. But yet we don't see... The same importance when it comes to the church. That what we do as the church is that crucial and that important. Not just, not just as to whether a company is going to turn a profit or not. I mean, in the world, we're just talking about profits. But when we talk about the church, when we talk about the things of God, we're talking about things that don't just affect the, the, the accounting or the bottom line At the end of the fiscal year, we're talking about things that have an eternal impact. And yet, we treat them as though they don't matter at all. How is that, that we've come to to do that, to have that attitude? It's because the church has allowed people to deceive themselves. We've allowed people to deceive themselves into believing it really doesn't matter. You do know that you will deceive yourself if left to yourself. You will. I mean, the only reason we're not all deceived today is by the grace of God. So why do we not have the same level of respect or fear concerning the things of God body of Christ and the Scripture as we do toward other areas of our life. I mean, you'd say, well, Pastor Jeff, if I don't get up and go to work on Monday morning, then I'm not going to get paid. If I don't get paid, I can't pay my bills, I can't keep my house, can't keep my car, can't feed my family, can't... So what you're saying is God's really not your provider, your job is, right? Right? Or you might say, well, well, what would they think about me if I was flaky like that? So what man thinks is more important than what God thinks. Or we fear man more than we really fear God. I mean, we do things in the church we wouldn't think of doing out in the world, but because it's the church, it just doesn't matter. And then we say, now, don't judge me, brother. And we, we hold that thing up. I'm not going to be the head cheerleader. What I'm talking about is chronic flakiness. I like that chronic flakiness. The church is full of chronic flakiness. You You know it is. It really is. It's just full of chronic flakiness. And somebody needs to do something about it. It needs to be dealt with. It really does. Now, you guys might not be chronic flakes. I'm not saying you are. But can we all agree, when we look at the church as a whole, when I say the church, I'm not just talking about the people in this room. I'm talking about the church. Let's look out over the landscape called Christendom. Let's just confine it to where we live. And we see this flakiness. And we don't deal with it because we've come to believe that we can't say anything or we shouldn't say anything because love says, don't say this. Or, but we've confused what love really is. I mean, how many of you would say, As your child plays in the middle of the road, well, I'm not going to say anything to him because I love him and I don't want to hurt his feelings. Would you rather hurt his feelings or would you rather see them get run over? Well, you'd rather hurt their feelings. And even if they leave the middle of the road kicking and screaming and crying, you're going to pull them out of the road, aren't you? Because you're not really worried about hurting their feelings, you're worried about saving their life. And see, as long as we allow the church to remain flaky, do you realize that we're impacting people's lives? We are. And so all the excuses and all the defensive we like to hold up there really don't mean anything. They're just a huge smoke screen. It's all smoke and mirrors. It's really, we, we put those things up there just to really distract from what really is the root of the problem. And we talked about some of these things today in the adult Bible study. It was very interesting. And so, there's got to be a time when we're willing to deal with some of these issues. When it comes to the church and our relationship with the body of Christ... And with Christ himself, do we have no real fear of God or genuine love or concern for one another? I mean, if as your pastor, if I see you just flaking out and I don't say anything to you, how much do I really love you if I don't say anything to you? I don't really love you very much, do I? I mean, the Scripture says, if you see your brother in sin, go to him. Now, there's a way we go, right? We go humbly, with meekness, so that we don't fall into the same temptation because it's only the grace of God that we're not right there where our brother is. But nowhere does it say, don't go to them. It's in matter of fact, commands us to go to them. But how is it that we've come into our culture today, and we've allowed the culture of the world to infiltrate the church where we believe that it's somehow inappropriate to confront people with their sin and flakiness? Because they profess to believe in Christ, so we're not supposed to say anything. Well, we just need to let the Spirit of God deal with them. Well, then why are we here this morning? I mean, why do we come together and hear the preaching of the word? Why don't we just all sit at home and agree that at 1030, we're going to let the Spirit of God deal with all of us? Well, a lot of people do that. (laughs) And you know what? They're wrong. They're wrong. Because that's not how the Spirit of God deals with us. You know how the Spirit of God deals with us? I mean, he can deal with us that way, but you know how Christ and God has chosen to deal with his people? Through the preaching of the Word, through teaching, through equipping. That is, that is one of the, if not the greatest way that God deals with us. And if we're not individually, personally spending time in this Word right here to make sure that what you're preached and what you're taught is not truth, then we've, we've fallen short there as well. So we're consumed with ourselves. We're so consumed with ourselves that we have become totally desensitized to how our decisions and our commitment, or lack thereof, affects those around us. And most importantly, our ability to fulfill what God has commanded us in His Word. How passionate is the church today about the Great Commission? I'm talking about the church as a whole. Now, you know, I hang out and talk with pastors a lot. And not all of these pastors, pastors, churches that, some of them pastor in denominations that have become, I mean, can we just say less than biblical? That's putting it mildly and nicely. And a lot of these pastors are quite disturbed about it. Some of them are so disturbed they've left their denominations. Because they've, their denominations have become so blatantly unbiblical. But yet, that is not... The majority of our society and our culture is applauding the fact that much of the church is becoming less and less biblical and more and more tolerant. That's the word, tolerant. Tolerant. So again, I ask this question. How passionate is the church about fulfilling the Great Commission? How passionate is the church about preaching the gospel? How passionate are we to know what that gospel is and what it is not? How can the church be the church if the church is not being the church? How can the church be the church if the church is not being the church? The answer to that is it it cannot, and it will not. We're not the church just because we call ourselves the church. Really, us being the church has nothing to do with what we call ourselves. Us being the church has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with God. God. It has to do with what God has called us, who God says we are. You're not living up to what a pastor thinks you should live up to. You are to live up to what God has declared you to be in his word. And you're not living up to that so you can make sure you get to heaven one day. You're not not saved by works. But if you are truly the church, if we are the church, if the church is, is the church, then she needs to start being the church. So when is that going to happen? Well, there was some interesting... um, George Barna's group did... um, They did a, a survey over the course of this last year. They published it on December 13th. And he titled this. It's not real long. I'm going to share this with you. It's called Six Mega Themes Emerge. Uh, from from the Barna Group research in 2010. These are the these are what he calls six mega themes he sees emerging in the church, and, and I just want to share these with you because I thought they were interesting. Because as I read these, I'm thinking that's that's exactly. I mean, if we're if we have eyes to see and ears to hear, and we're perceiving what's taking place in our culture and in the church, w- these things ought to be. Th- Evident to us. And they are. And so, let me just take you through these six things. Number one is, the Christian church is becoming less theologically literate. What used to be basic, universally known truths about Christianity are now unknown mysteries to a large and growing share of Americans, especially young adults. For instance... The study showed that while most people regard Easter as a religious holiday, only a minority of adults associate Easter with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Other examples include the finding that few adults believe that their faith is meant to be the focal point of their life or to be integrated into every aspect of their existence. I mean, can we not see the fruit of this in our culture today? And see, these aren't just suspicions that we're wondering if it's true. I mean, cold, hard data is proving out that what we think is happening is truly happening. A growing majority believe the Holy Spirit is a symbol, is a symbol of God's presence or power, but not a living entity. I mean, we see, we, you can turn on Christian television. And, and most of what is on Christian television is a bunch of mysticism. They talk about the Holy Spirit as some force or some power that's going to do this and going to do that instead of a third person of the Trinity of God who lives on the inside of you. I mean, we're preaching mysticism and calling it orthodoxy. We are. But we don't know the difference. Why? Because we're becoming biblically illiterate. We are so biblically illiterate we don't even know what mysticism is anymore we embrace it as orthodoxy because we don't know the difference. As the two younger generations, this is the generations born, the, born from 1964, they're called busters. The majority of people born since 1964... As these two younger generations ascend to numerical and positional supremacy in churches across the nation, the data suggests that biblical literacy is likely to decline significantly. The theological free-for-all that is encroaching in Protestant churches nationwide suggests the coming decade will be a time of unparalleled theological diversity and inconsistency. Translated, you got a bunch of people coming into the church who don't even know what the church is. Calling themselves Christians and they don't even know what real Christianity is. Preaching a gospel and they don't even know what the gospel is. And they're multiplying themselves. Their illiteracy is being multiplied. Their inconsistency is being multiplied. Number two, Christians are becoming more ingrown and less outreach-oriented. Despite technological advances that make communications instant and far-reaching, Christians are becoming more spiritually isolated from non-Christians than was true a decade ago. Examples of this tendency include the fact that less than one-third of born-again Christians planned to invite anyone to join them at a church event during the Easter season. Teenagers are less inclined to discuss Christianity with their friends than was true in the past. Most of the people who become Christians these days do so in response to a personal crisis or the fear of death, particularly among older Americans. And most Americans are unimpressed with the contribution Christians and churches have made to society over the past few years. That's a pretty significant statement. Do you know how many of our hospitals and universities exist because the church built them? But yet today, most of those hospitals and most of those universities are not even remotely associated with the church. Because in our culture today, society does not see, is not aware of the contribution the church has made. And so... Our culture today doesn't see the church as something that's adding to our society. It actually is seeing it as something that is taking away from our society. This is the trend. As young adults have children, the prospect of them seeking a Christian church is diminishing, especially given the absence of faith talk in their conversations with the people they most trust. In other words, families are not sitting around their house talking about God anymore. They're not talking about faith issues. Our kids are growing up in homes and they're not hearing conversations that revolve around faith and around God. So what do you think those kids are going to grow up wanting to talk about? The latest reality TV show. What the Kardashians are doing. Whether I can make it on American Idol or not, or whether America's got talent or not. This is what they're growing up talking about, because this is what the conversations in our homes revolve around. With atheists becoming more strategic in championing their godless worldview, as well as the increased religious plurality driven by education and immigration. The increasing reticence of Christians to engage in faith-oriented conversations assumes heightened significance. Let me translate that to you, for you. Our ability and our willingness to engage in faith-oriented conversations, what we would call being a witness to Christ through our life, not, not just through your preaching, through your condemnation. I'm talking about how you live your life out in the world among the people you associate with, whether they be friends, family, or or co-workers. Our willingness to engage in faith-oriented conversations become more and more important as our culture becomes less and less oriented toward the things of God. The fact that our culture is less and less oriented toward God means that our conversations and our life and lifestyle becomes more and more important as a witness for Christ. Here's the third mega trend that's emerging. Growing numbers of people are less interested in spiritual principles and more desirous of learning pragmatic solutions for life. When asked what matters most, teenagers prioritize education, career development, friendships, and travel. Faith is significant to them, but it takes a backseat to life accomplishments and is not necessarily perceived to affect their ability to achieve their dreams. In other words, I don't need God any longer to achieve my dreams or to be successful. That's going to happen because I went to the right school, applied myself, did the right thing, knew the right people. God has nothing to do with that. This is the attitude people are growing up with and believing now. Among adults, the areas of growing importance are lifestyle comfort, success, and personal achievements. I talked to a pastor yesterday in Liberia, West Africa. This guy called me one day here at the church. It was a wrong number. (laughs) I got a wrong number from Liberia, West Africa, and me and this guy have had a relationship since then. And and, and we, we talk on the phone pretty frequently. Well, now what they're all excited about, guess what they're all excited about in West Africa now? Now, some of you guys are going to just be upset with me, but I'm sorry. It doesn't matter. I don't really care. They're excited because Creflo Dollar has come to, to Liberia. And they are learning the prosperity gospel. And they are learning the keys to prosperity. Now, listen. I like Brother Ron's definition of prosperity. Prosperity is... Do I have what it takes to fulfill the will of God? If that's a million dollars, then let it be a million dollars. If that's a good pair of shoes, then let it be a good pair of shoes. I don't know. But but here is, here's my point, church. Among adults, the areas that have become the most important to us are our lifestyle, comfort, success, and personal achievement. It's become so important to us that we have developed a whole gospel around those things and we are now teaching people how to achieve lifestyle, comfort, success, and achievement and use God as a means to do it. And my success proves whether I actually have the blessing of God upon my life. I just always want to go back and wonder how successful would have the Apostle Paul been to these guys that are preaching this gospel? Because this is, in our fallen condition, the fallen nature, this is what we, this is what we want. I mean, this is not anything new. We saw it. In the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, Eve looked at that fruit and she says, it looks like it tastes good, the lust of the flesh. It's pleasing to the eyes, the lust of the eyes, it's beautiful. And it looks like it would make one wise. It looks like it would make me successful and and able to achieve great things, the pride of life. She was drawn away by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And we are now elevating these same things in a position and we're preaching the gospel in in an effort to try to justify going after what we should be running from as fast as we can. Now, I didn't say there's anything wrong with being prosperous because there's not. The Bible says God gives the power to create wealth. And if God gives you the power to create wealth, honey, create as much as you can. But just make sure you give the glory to the one who deserves the glory. And make sure your wealth doesn't have you, but you have it. It's a fine line in these areas. And this is what is so dangerous. If we're not vigilant in preaching the truth, if we're not vigilant to stay with the Scripture... We find ourselves bleeding over into areas where we're justifying sinfulness, and the scripture never gives us the right to do that. The turbocharged, fast paced society leaves people with little time for reflection. Those things that we just talked about, those dimensions have risen to the expense, at the expense of of the investment in both family and faith. The deeper thinking that occurs typically relates to economic concerns or relational pressures. Spiritual practices like contemplation, solitude, silence, and simplicity are rare. We no longer pursue those things for the sake of, of what they are and in leading us to a deeper awareness of, of Christ. But now we want to pursue those things because it may give us a greater level of success or a greater level of prosperity or lifestyle comfort. Mm-mm. We need to be careful, church. Church. Practical to a fault, Americans consider survival in the present to be much more significant than eternal security and spiritual possibilities. Because we continue to separate our spirituality from other dimensions of life through compartmentalization, a relatively superficial approach to faith has become a central means of optimizing our life experience. A relatively superficial approach to faith has become a central means of optimizing our life experience. Translation, it's more about perception than it is truth. It's more about how it makes me feel than whether it's true or not true. And if it makes me feel good, I will find a way of justifying it and calling it truth. And I'll turn to the guy on television promoting the same false doctrines and say, see, I told you so. Mm -mm. This is the only thing that we can point to. This right here. This scripture right here. Number four is this. Among Christians, interest in participating in community action is escalating. Well, that's a good thing. Largely driven by the passion and energy of young adults, Christians are more open and more involved in community service activities than have been true in recent years. While we remain more self-indulgent than self-sacrificing, the expanded focus on justice and service has struck a chord with many. However, despite the increased emphasis, churches run the risk of watching congregants' engagement wane unless they embrace a strong spiritual basis for such service, simply doing good works because it's socially esteemed, it's the socially esteemed choice of the moment will not produce much staying power. To facilitate service as a long term way of living and to provide people with the, in, the intrinsic joy of blessing others, churches have a window, they have a window of opportunity to support such action with biblical perspective. And the more that churches and believers can be recognized as people doing good deeds out of genuine love and compassion, the more appealing the Christian life will be to those who are on the sidelines watching. Showing that community action is a viable alternative to government programs is another means of introducing the value of the the Christian faith in society. Now here's the note that I put here on my thoughts the church must not become another source for handouts without accountability. Do you know why social activism is so, it's, it's, it's really big right now. The thing is, it's not just big in Christianity. There are people who are atheists who are big on the social um, service bandwagon. And I happen to believe, I don't have any research to back this up, but this is my opinion, based on the research I've seen and and based on the trends that are obvious in the church, a lot of this social activism is actually a backlash to what has been perceived as as the irrelevant, stiff, dead uh, faith and religion of the Christian church. The fact that Christianity by many in society today is seen as irrelevant, So they're going to go do something relevant. They're going to go out there and they're going to feed the poor. They're going to do these things that that need to be done. And that's not a bad thing, but, but here's my concern. If the church just becomes another source of handouts without accountability, in other words, if we don't operate again, if we don't operate according to the Scripture, if we just do it because it feels good, it seems good, It seems like the right thing. If we're not operating, though, based on the Scripture, this will only lead to an increased skepticism as people perceive that they are being used to no good end. I mean, how many of you are just about fed up with the amount of taxation that is being extracted from you? And that money is taken from you by force, and it's given to people, Some deserve it, some don't deserve it. But our government has deemed that it's the right thing to do. So our government is making moral decisions and extracting from you the means by which to pay for those moral decisions. Well, here's the thing. The church is doing it voluntarily. But see, we'll reach the same saturation point in the church if we get to the place... And this is the importance of staying biblical. We're just out there doing good things because it seems like the right thing to do. It's going to reach a tipping point where people are going to say, you know what, it seems like my good intentions and my good giving and my good giving of my time and my resources really aren't helping anybody. It's just facilitating and enabling the problem to be worse. You know what's going to happen? People are going to stop giving. They're going to stop giving to the church. They're going to stop giving to everything because they see no good into it. And you know who's going to allow them to stop giving? God will allow them to. Because God is not a parent who enables his children to continue in destructive behavior. See, as I say all of these things, what you have to temper all of this with is the sovereignty of God. God's, these things are real trends, but God is not out of control. God is absolutely in control. God absolutely knows these things are taking place. As a matter of fact, he's allowing these things to take place. He's allowing them to. Number five is this. The postmodern insistence on tolerance is winning over the Christian church. Our biblical illiteracy and lack of spiritual confidence has caused Americans to avoid making discerning choices for fear of being labeled judgmental. Some pastors would not get up and talk to you the way I'm talking to you today because it would be perceived as too hard. And you just wouldn't come back next week, and maybe you won't. (laughs) But the reality is, If pastors won't say these things, who's going to say them? If Christians will not say these things, who's going to say them? If we believe them to be true, but we will not act on them, then what good is that? If I know Jesus is the only way to salvation, but I'm not going to trust him, then Jesus doesn't do me much good, does he? Mm, He doesn't. The result... Of a, is a church that has become tolerant of a vast array of morality and spiritually, morally and spiritually dubious behaviors and philosophies. This increased leniency is made possible by the very limited accountability that occurs within the body of Christ. There are fewer and fewer issues that Christians believe churches should be dogmatic about. The idea of love has been redefined to mean the absence of conflict and confrontation. That is so true. I mean, all a pastor has to do, he can spend two hours telling you whatever he wants, and at the end of his two hours, say, Jesus is your Savior, God loves you. Then that puts him off limits on everything he just spent two hours telling you. Because we can't touch God's anointed. Give me a break. Come on, church. That's not love. The truth is love, because only the truth will set you free. And we better learn how to speak the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love means we don't speak the truth, it means we speak the truth. And because I love you, I'm going to tell you the truth. Not in a mean way, not in a condemning way, but I'm going to tell you the truth. Even if I know it's going to offend you, I'm going to tell you the truth. The idea of love has been redefined to mean the absence of conflict and confrontation as if there are no moral absolutes that are worth fighting for. That may not be surprising in a church in which a minority believes there are moral absolutes dictated by the scriptures. You understand this? It is now a majority of people who confess to be the church who believe that this book really is a book of moral absolutes. This book is becoming more relative every day. It's becoming more situational every day. In the minds of men, but not in reality. Not in reality. The challenge today is for Christian leaders to achieve the delicate balance between representing truth and acting in love. The challenge for every Christian in the U.S. is to know his or her faith well enough to understand which fights are worth fighting and which stands are non-negotiable. There is a place for tolerance in Christianity. Knowing when and where to draw the line appears to perplex a growing proportion of Christians in this age of tolerance. There are some things we can agree to disagree on. There are other things that we have to absolutely agree on in order to call ourselves Christian and in order to call ourselves the church. Number six, and this is my last point here on these trends that are emerging. Number six is the influence of Christianity on culture and individual lives is largely invisible. Christianity has arguably arguably, added more value to American culture than any other religion, philosophy, religion, ideology, or community. Yet contemporary Americans are hard-pressed to identify any specific value added. Partly due to the nature of today's media, they have no problem identifying the faults of the churches and Christian people. Here's the translation to that. When they they surveyed randomly these 5,000-plus homes or people, I can almost bet you the question was asked, can you identify any specific contribution Christianity has made to our culture? And what he's saying is no one could identify specific things. But if you ask them what's wrong with Christianity, we can begin to list all the things that we've seen in the media. And you know what, the reality is, if there's something wrong with people who call themselves Christians, that's fine, I don't have a problem with, you know, if the guy who's on TV every day, you know, peddling his wares, if he's going to sleep with the guy or the girl, then uh, I don't have a problem with, if he's going to be a national figure, then then he's going to, his sin is going to become a national issue. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but what I'm saying is, that is not what the church should be known for. And that's why it's important to hold our leaders accountable, not to let them become so high up on a pedestal that we can't speak to them any longer, that we can't speak into their lives any longer. No one is, has the courage because they're afraid they're going to lose their position or their salary or something, so we can't tell the man of God that what he's doing is wrong. That's not Christianity. That's not biblical. That's not what the Bible reveals to us. And this is why people can't see any value added in terms of Christianity. In a period of history where image is reality and life-changing decisions are made on the basis of such images, the Christian church is in desperate need of a more positive and accessible image. The primary obstacle is not the substance of the principles on which Christianity is based. In other words, there's nothing wrong with the book. There's nothing wrong with the Scriptures. And therefore, the solution is not solely providing an increase in preaching or public relations. We don't need another slick marketing campaign to defend God, in other words. That's not what we need. Here's what we need, church. What we need is the most influential aspect of Christianity in America is how believers do or do not implement their faith in public and private. In other words, it's how... You and I live our lives every day. This is how America is judging Christianity and judging the church, how we live our lives every day. We don't need to hire a marketing firm to give us a better self-image. We need to go out and be the church is what we need to do. American culture is driven by the snap judgments and decisions that people make amidst busy schedules and incomplete information. "...with little time or energy available for or devoted to research and reflection, it is people's observations of the integration of a believer's faith into how he or she responds to life's opportunities and challenges that most substantially shape people's impressions of and interest in Christianity." How you and I live our lives every day is what's going to either draw people or repel people from our faith. Amen. Jesus frequently spoke about the importance of the fruit that emerges from a Christian life. These days, the pace of life and the avalanche of competing ideas underscores the significance of visible spiritual fruit as a source of cultural influence. We, we talked about this today as we're studying 1 Thessalonians. This is why... Paul emphasized the importance of the the walk of the believer. Not because he's earning his salvation, but if we are saved, our walk becomes very important. Why? Because it's our walk that the world is seeing and perceiving and judging Christ by. Jesus isn't here walking the face of the earth. We are his body walking this earth and they are judging Jesus by us. And this is why the writers of the New Testament said over and over, your walk is important. Your walk is important. Not so that you'll have the assurance of salvation one day, but because your life matters and your life is influencing other people around you. This is why your walk is important. With the likelihood of an accelerating pace of life and increasingly incomplete cues being given to the population... Christian leaders would do well to revisit the criteria for success and the measures used to assess it. In a society in which choice is king, there are no absolutes. Every individual is a free agent. We are taught to be self-reliant and independent. And Christianity is no longer the automatic default faith of young adults. New ways of relating to Americans and exposing the heart and soul of the Christian faith are required. In other words, we must become not only able, but willing to relate to people the heart and the soul of Christianity and the gospel of Christ. Our greatest influence comes through relationship. It's our relationships. Hands down, more so than anything. So, the church and our nation need an awakening. Those are six trends that, that are emerging. They're here. They're not emerging, they're here. This is what's happening in the church. And we're the church. So, we've got to do something about it. So, the church and our nation need an awakening. Here's a quote from an article about the need for awakening and the condition of the church in the Western world. This statistic, and I haven't researched where this statistic exactly came from, but I'll just throw it out to you with that caveat. Uh, the, the statistic is that 82,000 people come to Christ every day. And they're talking about Christianity. I mean, the, the, the gospel is impacting the world. It's just not impacting our world. Of that 82,000, in, in Europe, in, in America... Europe and North America, Western Europe and North America, there's only about 6,000 of those people a day coming to faith in Christ. The vast majority of the people coming to faith in Christ, in other words, are not in Western Europe and they're not in America. They're in Africa. They're in Asia. They're in what we call the, the, the 1040 window. They're in the third world. They're in the poorest parts of the world. They're in the parts of the world where Islam has the greatest influence, and, and there are Muslims flooding to the gospel of Christ. It's good news. But we don't live over there. We live here. And we live here, you know why? Because this is where God ordained us to live. This is where God put us. Did you choose to be born in America? Did you choose? No, you didn't. You were born in America. You live where you live because this is where God put you. And if God put us here, then we should be impacting our culture for God. Don't worry about saving the world if we're not going to be concerned about right here where we live. We're giving our time and our money our resources to go save the world over there, and the world here is going to hell. And it ought not to be that way. And so... Why are we not seeing a great spiritual movement in Western Europe and North America? Here's what the article says, and I wholeheartedly agree, because we live in a culture which views God as a hobby. In our society, Christianity is for church, religion is for Sunday. Our faith is to be kept separate from the real world, but everywhere God's people are making God their king, the Lord and master of every day and every dimension of their lives, great awakening is coming. How can it come to our culture? God's word contains the answer. Second Chronicles 7, 13 and 14. Now I want you to listen to this carefully. We usually quote the scripture starting here, if my people who are called, but I don't want to start there. I want to start, on the verse preceding that. Here's what God says. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command locusts to devour the land, or send a plague among my people. See, that flies in the face right there of the majority of the gospel that's preached in America. I mean, God would not send a plague. God would not send the locusts. God would not do those things. God wants to prosper me. He wants to make me successful. He wants me to be rich. He wants me to have a Rolls Royce and a Gold Lexus in my Six-carriage garage. No! You know why God's going to send the locust. You know why he's going to withhold the rain? Because God knows in our fallen nature, because if left to ourselves, what we're becoming is what we'll become. The church, if left to herself, won't be the church. So God says, when I sin, when I shut the heavens up, when there is no rain, when I command the locusts to devour the land, send the plague among my people... If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. So we can't identify with the heavens being shut up or the locust or plagues because we don't have those today. I mean, as long as we can go to Walmart and H-E-B, as long as our debit card, credit card, Lone Star card, as long as all that works, we're we're good to go. So the question that's in my mind is this. How bad does it have to get before we do what that Scripture says? At what point will we finally humble ourselves and begin to pray and really seek the face of God, not just, you know, yeah. I wish it would rain, God. I wish the taxes weren't so high, God. At what point do we, when do we reach that tipping point that we begin to realize, whew, we better start praying. Because what we're doing or what we're not doing is, is it's having an effect. That's not God angry with us, that's God in His mercy dealing with us. Not because He wants to punish us, but because He loves us. And He really wants men to turn to Him. And He loves us enough to allow us to be put in a position where we have no choice but to turn to Him. Emerson said this, one of our illusions is that the present hour is not the crucial hour. And he was right. The hour is upon us. Tomorrow is promised to no nation, including ours. You guys realize that? It's not even promised to us. We have a promise in Christ. But I can't 100% tell you that I'm going to be here tomorrow. I'm planning on it, but I might not be. But I am here today, right now. The question is not just what are we going to do tomorrow. The question is what are we going to do right now? Oh, somebody will take care of it, you know. It will all get worked out. You know, it's the wash principle. It will all come out in the wash. Okay. Gypsy Smith, a great evangelist of an earlier generation, was asked how revival begins. His response, take a piece of chalk, draw a circle around yourself, get on your knees and pray until everything in that circle is right with God and revival will be upon us. We can never expect change to come until we change. Draw that circle around yourself. Start there. Start now. I don't like these terms. Awakening, revival, reformation. You know, revival to the church is having seven solid nights of preaching and teaching. We wear everybody out for a week and we call it revival. <laughs> that is not revival. Lord have mercy on us. That's part of the problem. Whatever you want to call it, it begins with you and it begins with me, individually and personally. Our future will be impacted, good or bad, by what we do or do not do, today and every day. I will not allow you to be deceived into thinking that what you do or not do makes a difference, because it does. It does for all of us. You are the church. You make a difference by the life you live each and every day one way or another, good or bad. You're sending a signal about who Christ is, one way or the other. I pray we stop being consumed with ourself and begin to be consumed by Him. It's time, church, to be the church. And I'll leave you with this scripture, Romans thirteen eleven. And do this knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now... Our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. I pray you would spend some time thinking about these things. I'll have this uploaded onto the website. I'll post the note on Facebook. If you're not my friend, ask me. I'd love to be your friend. But somehow, some way, we need to reflect on these things. This is where we are right now. This is what's happening And we can't say that's another part of the church, that's those dead people over there, that's those traditional people over there. No. We're all in this together. This is, you realize, church, this is our Jerusalem. Taylor is your Jerusalem. We're called to reach this city. And if we're not going to purpose to reach it, then then who's going to do it? We have no control over anybody outside these four walls. But every one of us here, we know what God has commanded. We know what he's mandated. We know what he's commissioned us to do. The question is, are we going to do it? And how are we going to do it? And if we don't see ourselves as being the church 24-7, wherever we are, doing whatever we're doing, that is the work of ministry. That's your greatest work. It's not some title I give you. It's not some time slot I give you. It's not something you do in the church. You are the church. Your life that you live every day is your greatest ministry. It's where you have the greatest influence, whether you realize it or not. And I'm saying, I'm asking you to realize it. To realize how influential you are. And to become an influence for the gospel of Christ. Amen? Let's all stand.